We have sad news this morning. Les Levine, who we have hosted on Cleveland.com for the last few years with his sports talk show, has died. He was a signature voice for Cleveland sports for a long time. Lots of people know him. He'll be missed, and we're feeling bad for his partner over at uh, Classic Telecommunications, Mike Bacon, who's been a big supporter of his for years and one of our big partners. This week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer, I'm Chris Quinn, here with my colleagues Chris Warnowski, Laura Johnston, and Jane Cahoon. We talked yesterday about how we used to have a guy in town named Tom Hayes who would fix the crises that erupted in county government back in the county commission day. And I actually heard from him last night. Somebody (laughs) flagged him to the podcast. And in an email, he said he pretty much diagnosed what's wrong with the county. He diagnosed what's wrong with the state unemployment system and in true graceful leadership style gave credit for all the fixing that he did back in the day to other people. A true gentleman. Good to hear from him. We could use him again, right? (laughs) Yes, Tom, we need you. We need you at unemployment. Please come back, please, please. We're talking about unemployment later on in this podcast because there's news there that truly boggles my mind. Let's begin. Cleveland City Council President Kevin Kelly issued the first council subpoenas in more than 20 years on Wednesday. Chris Warnowski, it's interesting to see what he's after. I should point out that the last time the city council issued subpoenas, me and Mark Bosberg, our colleague, were covering city council. That's how long ago it was. Oh, good. We can we can talk about it a little later, like what 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 that what you were covering at the time. But right now, uh, we uh, Kevin Kelly did on Wednesday signed a subpoena for documents dealing with uh, First Energy and its efforts to secretly fund efforts to discredit Cleveland Public Power. The subpoena seeks records from Consumers Against Deceptive Fees, which we have talked about what seems like a lot on this podcast. And uh, Kelly and his council colleagues want to know the source of about $351,000 that the group received in 2018 to basically run a campaign disparaging CPP and its rates and services. If you recall, this nonprofit, Consumers Against Deceptive Fees, received about $200,000 through a dark money group that was funded by First Energy. And so, Kelly, Kelly, I think they want to know what, where the rest of this organization's money came from. And, and, and that's what they're kind of looking for. But it's like $300,000 plus, right? It's a lot right. of money. Yeah, it's it's a lot of money. So so I think I think what they're trying to get to the bottom of is 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 where this organization's additional money came from. This, of course, comes on top of Mayor Frank Jackson telling us Wednesday that his administration is close to deciding whether to take action against First Energy for everything that has happened and everything that has sort of come out in in recent months about how it was running this campaign against Cleveland Public Power. Well, there is the potential that First Energy provided a half million dollars to subvert that. And I'm betting that that violates all sorts of business practices. We're going to have Bob Higgs look at the meaning of a subpoena. My memory's vague, but I do kind of recall the last time around there was a challenge to the power of Cleveland City Council issuing a subpoena. It's enshrined in the charter. It's been there forever. We're going to figure out how long. But in that case, they were they were seeking records from the mayor and others in City Hall. They obeyed the subpoena. But this is an outside agency they're going after. And it'll be interesting to see whether this power really does exist. If, if somebody takes this to the Supreme Court, will they say, yes, that power that you've put into your own charter does exist, right? 
Right. And I think what this will illustrate is maybe just how much things have changed in in the long time since you covered the city council with Mark. But these these organizations have become much more savvy in 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 being able to kind of bury this trail of where money comes from and 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 how it how it passes through these organizations. So I think it, it will be fascinating to see if there is a legal challenge to this, which there most certainly will be, how the courts view this in in terms of you know, what campaign finance laws and what the rules say now. But, let's talk, let, but let, you say there must certainly be a legal challenge. And I, let's talk about that a little bit, because in many ways, just by issuing the subpoena, Kevin Kelly has won, got the big story. It mm. keeps the focus on first energy. If they fight the subpoena, there'll be stories about them trying to keep secret who their source of funding is when everybody suspects it's first energy. If that gets appealed, there'll be more stories. Every step of this is a victory for Kevin Kelly trying to shine a light on what First Energy did with Cleveland Public Power. On the other hand, if this organization that, that you know doesn't exist anymore, doesn't have any money, just says, well, we can't afford to fight this, turns over the records right up front, there's mm-hmm. one story, you know, that's one thing, Kevin Kelly gets what he wants, and the controversy on their end goes away. I mean, there might be an argument that the smartest thing these people could do be here, here, take the records, get out of our hair, let us alone. And if they fight it, does Kevin Kelly then turn to the law firm that has refused to talk to us about their role in this, Retzel and Andress, that they may have knowledge? Does this become a battle with a law firm which gets into lawyer-client privilege? Maybe. I I don't know. I mean, you, you bring up some very good points there. I'm not putting a lot of optimistic thoughts into this because on one hand you do want to see all this information come out you want to understand you know how the different tendrils of this sort of work their way through our local politics but you know I, I think this story has taught a lot of us to kind of prepare for disappointment not that I want to see like Larry Householder ousted from the house or anything but Jane you've talked earlier in this week in the podcast about how first energy is now professing they are dedicated to transparency. First Energy could make this go away in a minute by saying, yes, 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 they were funded by our dark money. This is how we gave it to them. They've said they want to be into transparency. If they don't do this, it kind of points out that they don't want to be into transparency, no? Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, it could be damaging to them, but heck, how could, you know, <laughs> how could this the whole thing has been so damaging that, to them already, they would at least look like they're trying to repair some of that damage if they did that. Look, I think the odds are really high that their money paid for this group. If it paid for the second the second half of its life, it probably paid for the first half. Everybody already suspects it. What's the damage really to your reputation at mm-hmm. this point? You could put it all on Chuck Jones and say, man, that Chuck Jones era at First Energy was really bad and we're reforming and get it over with and give yeah, the city yeah. what it needs so that it can figure out where to go. There is some civil liability. Fascinating on so many aspects. It'll be very interesting to watch this story proceed. But we got lots of other stuff to talk about. Let's move on. It's this week in the CLE. Do we have any clue why the members of the Ohio House refused to oust Larry Householder, the former House Speaker, charged as the mastermind of the biggest corruption case in State House history? Jen Cahoon, this this headline popped up yesterday. I didn't know it was coming. And my jaw dropped again. <laughs> what are these people thinking? Honestly, that this is hard to comprehend. I mean, now we, we all know that under the Constitution, householders innocent until proven guilty, right? But there's more than ample evidence that he 
behaved sleazily as House Speaker, and he's brought shame to the Ohio General Assembly. He's accused of something directly related to legislating that is awful. The most, as you said, the biggest bribery scheme in in state history, according to the feds. So the fact that they didn't expel him as soon as he started his new term, and as you want to always remind people, they've continued to leave that tainted law that he put on the books and not do anything about repealing it is it's just something that defies explanation to me. The current House Speaker, Bob Cup, was hoping against hope that Householder would would just voluntarily resign. But but obviously that hasn't happened. He's been attending sessions and and voting, although they didn't give him any committee assignments. But Cup's uh, very powerful statement Wednesday was there's still ongoing discussion in the caucus to find out where they're at. My personal position is clear, but we'll have to see where it goes from here. Okay, I mean, I, really? I, I don't I don't think I'm taking too big a leap here. So we know from all of the correspondence that we've seen and what the feds have laid out that Larry Householder used leverage to get people to do what he wanted. You got to wonder, does he have something on his colleagues? And that's why they're doing something that is so incredibly wrong by allowing him to remain a member. I can't come up with an explanation for this. He, yeah, he, the, the only other explanation is that they, they don't want to overturn the will of the voters who elected Householder overwhelmingly in November. Of course, he didn't, you know, he didn't have an opponent. And, and it was after he got arrested that, you know, it was past the filing deadline. So he just had a few, like, writing candidates. So he, he did get reelected. But, you yeah, know. but come on. That, that, I mean, if that's what they're standing on, then they're willing to have the, literally, the guy who is painted very clearly as the mastermind of a $60 million bribery scheme to pretty much steal from the people of Ohio and feed it into First Energy's coffers, they're okay with him staying in their midst. <laughs> having a they vote. did take him out last year as, as speaker. They took away his leadership position. And, and it's understandable that last year they didn't want to expel him because you can only expel someone once for the same misconduct. So supposedly they were waiting until after he got reelected and started his new term to do that. But we're in February now and, you know, they haven't. They haven't so really, the only one who's done the right thing about this is David DeVillers, the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of Ohio. And I guess we're going to have to count on him to move this trial along to convict him so that he's automatically tossed out. Right. That, that way he was colleagues out. he has. I, I, I just. I mean, we talked often about HB6 and the fact they won't get rid of it and, and Bill Seitz and his nonsense about how it's a good bill when it's absolutely not a good bill. But to stand by a guy that is clearly going down, I, it, it, this is one that, that I, you know, it's what causes people to lose faith in politics. And really, Mike DeWine, every time he's asked, he goes, well, I've made my possession clear. He should get up in, in every briefing and say, hey, members of the yeah. House, when are you going to get rid of this guy? You have a cancer in your midst. And you know, let's face it, Mike DeWine is the titular head of the Republican Party. Where is his oomph in getting this fixed? So I don't know. We'll, Good we'll question. See. This week in the CLE. What is Cleveland Mayor Frank Jackson's strategy for the possibility that the city will lose tens of millions of dollars a year in income taxes from people working from home outside the city? Larry Johnson, we talked about this a lot in the beginning of the pandemic, that a lot of people weren't going in the city. So why do they have to pay income taxes? Mike DeWine and his colleagues got a law passed for, for business purposes 
to have them continue to withhold the way they were, because if they had to change it to send it to all the cities that their employees lived in, it would be a nightmare. But but he said from the beginning, this was never intended to funnel money into the cities. What What is Frank Jackson's plan in case the courts come back and say you are not entitled to those income taxes? Well, the plan right now is just to kind of get a gauge on how massive this problem is and what the impact is going to be. He said they're trying to get their arms around in terms of number of people, but what the salary ranges are of the people that are contributing to the city's budget, because this is massive for Cleveland. Cleveland collects 2.5% of gross income from people who work in the city. The, the 2021 budget expects individual income taxes and business profits will raise about $424 million of the city's $636 million for the year. So that's, what, two-thirds of the budget coming in? But that expectation is based on continuing to collect taxes. And 85% of those taxes are coming from people who don't live in the city. We're talking about a whole well above $300 million. So that's just jaw dropping a a hole that they're going to have to try to fill. So Frank Jackson believes that the city is on the right side of the law, that it was changed to allow the city to continue to collect taxes. And even though there are lawsuits against it, he believes they're going to prevail. But he also deals in reality, as we've talked about this a couple of times on the podcast, and he says that he's not sure what would happen if this, the bill was going to be thrown out or what happens when the pandemic eventually, I don't see an end date in, in store, but when people come back to work, if they don't all come back to the city, to the offices, there's no real answer for that yet. Well, what I, what I appreciated when he talked to the editorial board is he fin- this is the first time he acknowledged the possibility that they would lose that money and then it could be retroactive, which he said would be the worst disaster you know, the law wasn't passed to protect the cities. The law was passed to protect the employers who would have had to, on a dime, change all their bookkeeping. It would have been a nightmare. And I, I really just don't see how, even if the legislature intended to give the money to the cities, how it could be constitutional. If you don't work in the city and you don't live in the city, they can't make you give money to the city. It's just not the way it works. And I, I can't imagine that the Ohio Supreme Court won't throw that law out and won't make it retroactive. I'm a little bit surprised, Jane Cahoon, that this thing is moving so slowly. I mean, it's kind of an urgent matter. Yeah. And it yeah. doesn't seem to be going anywhere. There's a lot of money at stake. And, and really, for the cities, every month that goes by where they operate using this money, if it gets to be retroactive, the hole they're going to have to dig out of, I don't know how they do it. They're going to go bankrupt. Yeah. Well, I don't think they asked for like a an injunction, you know, like in an immediate sort of way. So it's just lending its way through. I think well, this question's well, coming up a lot because people are starting to file their taxes, right? And Rita, the regional income tax agency, has already told taxpayers that who are seeking refunds that'll hold on to the money till the litigation is settled. But this is top of mind because this could be thousands of dollars for one person they could get back. Well, Cleveland's rate is two and a half percent. And I get that a lot of suburbs have exemptions for for what you pay to Cleveland. You don't have to pay to them. But those suburbs would want the money then. It was good to hear that they're doing some contingency planning. But I still I've said from the beginning, I think it's going to be a disaster for the cities. And I Jackson also said he thinks that the the employees will come back because of the critical mass of being together. Um, I think surveys have shown most people would rather continue to work from home most of the time. Uh, not everybody. We have some people on our staff who are having some serious issues with working from home who would like to get back and have adult conversation. 
You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How is Ohio Governor Mike DeWine using his budget proposal to try to get his gun reform? Well, not gun reform. I got to correct myself. He says it's not reform. His gun proposals passed the legislature. Chris Ranowski, this is an interesting strategy when he failed completely to get the legislature to adopt these proposals in the last session. Right. So he's now saying that he's going to stick these, I'm, I'm calling it reforms, in, into his state budget proposal. The budget plan includes specific proposals that DeWine said are meant to reduce gun crime, which includes partly giving more money and gr- through grants to local police departments or boost state support to help them investigate crimes. Another measure would spend like $10 million to help local police departments buy body cameras. I think we only have like something like a ninth of Ohio's police departments are are equipped with body cams. But I think the big news here is that he's sort of trying to reintroduce what he called his strong Ohio plan, which, which did fail in the legislature, which would created state-level background checks to process private gun sales, expand the so-called pink slip laws through which some, someone suffering a mental health episode can be involuntarily committed and have their guns basically taken away. It would also toughen penalties for some gun-related crimes and other provisions. That bill stalled before the Republican-controlled state legislature, even though DeWine retreated from some of the most aggressive things that he had in there, which were universal background checks, expanded red flag laws, all that stuff he sort of retreated from. And DeWine even tried to pressure the legislature to pass the bill by hinting that he would veto the Stand Your Ground bill that he you know, has since signed. I think he signed it last month. His plan to, is often referred to gun control, but he he does bristle at that. He he, you know, I think he hears the the campaign ads playing in his head <laughs> when when people call it gun control. So I, I think he hopes that he'll be able to kind of to get this through this way, but that remains to be seen. Yeah, I I think it's interesting that he's he's suddenly bristling on gun reform because I think everybody's called him that since the beginning. But no, I think and, he's bristling at the at, at it being called gun control. I think reform is fine. I think he's okay with reform. I think control is the thing that... Oh, was it control? Okay, I must have misunderstood. I thought it was reform. Well, it'll be interesting to see if they're receptive to it. I mean, we've said from the beginning, this is common sense stuff. There's really no reason not to adopt it. That's been his position repeatedly. But then he signed the stand your ground law, which which lots of people (laughs) had problems with. And it makes you question Mike DeWine's whole approach to guns. It's this week in the CLE. How much is Ohio paying out in bogus unemployment benefits? And did anyone collect in the name of Mike DeWine, Fran DeWine, or John Houston? Jane Cahoon, I've got lots of questions about this. I posed a few in my morning note to editors today that I think we'll be doing some stories on. But before we get to those questions, because I am mind boggled, what are the numbers? Well, the, the number is that Ohio has paid at least $330 million in fraudulent pandemic unemployment benefits between April and December of 2020. So that's what that we learned yesterday. And that number is expected to grow. It's just an indication of how widespread this is. And you're right. This is a story that right now probably has more questions than answers. So I can't even answer about the DeWines and Houston because I want to say I think they caught those, but I, I'm not positive. Well, that's my that's my first question or my second question. But let's do it at first that that if all of these fraudulent things have been paid out, they've been paid out in people's names. And mm-hmm. and shouldn't there be a way for Ohioans to quickly check and see if fraud has been committed in their names? And I don't believe there is. 
You're right. I, that's what we're trying to find out today, along with trying to answer many other questions. Well, the other question this. is, <laughs> there's all sorts of fail-safes in this, right? They're supposed to check mm -hmm. with the employer to see if the person has lost their job. They're supposed to, and they do, send notices to the real person that, you know, here's your pin and there's a claim in your name. Mm -hmm. And obviously that didn't work. So how did they find out they were fraudulent after the money was paid? You would think that that all of the indicators would come before the money is paid. And once the check is written and the money's cashed, they wouldn't think about it. But they've been able to find out that a whole lot of these are fraudulent. Right. I'm really curious about what was the red flag after you paid it and shouldn't you move that to the other part of the process? Right, right. All I know is that the standards or the verification process for the pandemic unemployment assistance claims, that special program, the, the bar was lower for those. And now supposedly <laughs> they've tightened those up. But, uh, I, Kimberly Henderson, the director of the Ohio Department of Job and Family Services, I believe she said that about 100,000 fraudulent claims were caught last December before any money was sent. That Those are PUA claims. So they, they did catch some of them. But we heard John Houston say last month that 796,000 of the 1.4 million PUA claims made in Ohio since the coronavirus crisis began have been flagged for potential fraud. So apparently they refer these things to the U.S. Department of Labor's Inspector General's office. And we can't seem to find out, like, you know, what happens after that? Are they arresting people? Are they tracking down the scammers? God, um, we posed all those questions. I mean, think about yeah. the number of cases that would clog up the courts if you went after every one of these as an individual fraud claim. Yeah, I mean, it's just... Tom Hayes, we need you. Again, <laughs> yeah. <once> again. <laughs> it just raises so many questions that they're not answering. And we I, should I, be at, well, I think I, we'll ask them today in the briefing with Mike DeWine. So, Mike DeWine, we're coming at you. Why isn't this a career-ending thing for somebody? Like, I just... Like, $330 million is a lot of money. And... I, I this is one of the first times I think my jaw has actually legitimately dropped at, at something. I just like I was stunned by how how bad this was. And it just it feels like a much bigger deal than. Yeah. When you think about all the people who are really hurting and haven't gotten their money, it's it's really it's really awful. Yeah, yeah, it, it it really is, and there's so but many. But you know, I don't think you can just hang the director out to dry because this system, this computer system, which is such a mess, you know, has been ignored through the years. So I think there's probably a lot of blame to be spread around. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How rare was that sighting of a bobcat in Summit Metro Parks recently? Laura Johnson, it's kind of exciting. We like to see animals getting reintroduced. It's another predator. It's pretty rare. Yeah, it's pretty rare. It hasn't happened in Summit County, at least since 2017. According to the Ohio Department of Natural Resources, there's been nearly 500 sightings of bobcats since then. Those are verified means a bobcat was killed on the road, trapped, or photographed. And that's most often in eastern and southern Ohio, according to an ODNR map, hence the mascot of Ohio University in Athens. But this one in Summit County uh, in the Metro Parks in Furnace Run Metro Park in Richfield was the first time it'd been spotted around Summit County since 2017. And you shouldn't be afraid of it. I know you're not. You, you're very excited about this. They won't attack people. They don't like being seen and are instead known for their tremendous, horrifying screech. 
But the good news is, yeah, it shows that our ecosystem is thriving. You know, the sad thing is that we have coyotes now. We have bobcats. There's two predators. It's interesting that they're in kind of the same spot. But none of these predators go after deer, right? I mean, we're overrun by deer. Where are the predators for the deer? That's what we need to see. When will wolves show up? Anyway, it's very cool. I would love to see a bobcat in the wild, but not too close. It's this week in the CLE. We don't hear much about the Cuyahoga County Airport in Richmond Heights, but it could soon be home to a company headquarters paying the county a lot of rent. Chris Warnowski, who is it? A private luxury jet company wants to build a corporate headquarters and flight operations at the facility out in Richmond Heights. The sort of always overlooked Cuyahoga County Airport, which is out there. Under the terms of this lease that was approved by a Cuyahoga County Council committee, it would be a 20-year lease. And under those under the terms of it, the FlexJet would pay the county $11 million over the next two decades. The agreement also includes two 10-year renewal options for an additional $15 million. The company says that it, it expects to bring about 200 new jobs to the area. And the agreement with the county covers FlexJet's lease on the property, as well as fuel fees and other related costs. So I think they are just a private jet service that leases jets and, and offers fractional jet ownership to its customers. They're a 25-year-old company. They have a $2.5 billion portfolio, and they have offices all over the world. So it looks like an actual bit of good news for the county that could use it. <laughs> Well, a lot of people are hoping that eventually Burke closes down and that the traffic can move out there. So this would be a step in that direction. We'll have to see if a future mayor goes that route. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How are things going for Congressman Anthony Gonzalez after he was one of 10 Republicans in the House of Representatives to vote for impeachment of President Donald Trump? There was lots of lots of chatter about this. You know, people saying, oh, he's in big trouble back home, Jane Cahoon, which you know, was based on a couple of anecdotes. We talked to him. What's he say? Well, he says the feedback that he's gotten has basically fallen into three categories. One faction that enthusiastically agrees with him, a second one that disagrees with him, but understands why he did it. And then a third group that is just furious with him. So he said he doesn't go about his job wondering about the next primary all the time. And he he hasn't backed down on this view that he's upholding his oath to do what's right, even if it's going to hurt him. He said he had to get extra security, but he, he wouldn't go into detail about that, except to say he's he's managing things okay. And he revealed, you know, we probably don't have time here, but he revealed a lot of interesting things like about what he went through that day of the insurrection, what he thinks about the future of the Republican Party and Trump and, and so forth. Think, what does he think about the future of the Republican Party? Well, he thinks they need to reject extremism like that of Marjorie Taylor Greene. And he thinks they need to focus on policies like trade and taxes and foreign policy and, and things like that. He said they really have to reject, you know, these these extreme views. He's been an impressive guy. I mean, he's one, he's just yeah. his first term and he's just been impressive. And to stand up, I mean, he did the right thing. You know, Donald Trump tried to throw out the whole constitution and, and overthrow democracy. And, and I'm surprised that so many of Gonzalez's colleagues won't stand on the right side of this because it's really pretty clear, but good for him. You said he, he hired security. Did we get a sense he's afraid? No, no. I think he's just, you know, a realist about this. I mean, he talked about, I'm sure his experience influenced him. He said he had to barricade himself in his office with his staff. He changed into his workout clothes in case he had to make a run for it. And meanwhile, he's trying to get a hold of somebody in the Trump administration. 
And at the same time, he sees Trump tweeting horrible things about Mike Pence, you know, and then people coming in the building saying, hang Mike Pence. And so I think he really was just horrified by by the whole thing. And, you know, he realized that he he and others were in danger. So he's realistic about that. In danger from the people that Ivanka Trump called patriots. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Right. Good conversation. We always have good conversations on Thursdays and Fridays. This is a fun podcast to do at the end of the week. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Jane. Thanks to everybody who listens. We'll be back tomorrow to wrap up the week of news. <laughs>